Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show, where we usually interview fighters and firebrands in the political and cultural battlefields. But today, I'd like to talk about yesterday's front page hit piece in the New York Times on Hasidic yeshivas. Let me begin by saying that I'm a proponent of classical education. I actually wrote a whole article on this topic when I was the editor of the Jewish Press called The Case for a Well-Rounded Education. I don't advocate a classical education because people will earn more money by by being educated. Some people will earn more more money and some people won't. But Torah greats like the Rambam and Rav Shamshan Rafal Hirsch didn't recommend studying math or science so that you earn more money. In fact, Rav Hirsch explicitly writes that children should not study these subjects to make more money. He actually complains that, here's a quote, instead of encouraging our children to get wisdom for its own sake, we raise them to become only clever and shrewd, judging everything in the light of self-interest and respecting only those intellectual and spiritual pursuits that are likely to yield the highest dividends in terms of material gain, end quote. So why then did the Rambam and Rav Hirsch recommend being educated? For that matter, why did the founders of the modern elementary school and university system advocate that a person receive a well-rounded education? Okay, so the answer is a bit difficult to explain, but essentially they believe that wisdom refines a person, fulfills him, elevates his soul. There's something a person's soul gets, his neshama, from reading a brilliant line in Shakespeare that he doesn't get from playing football with his friends. There's something a person's soul gets from studying an elegant mathematical formula that he doesn't get from opening a new credit card that he saw promoted on Dan's deals. Just the way it is. The person who, de- the people who designed the West's educational system believed knowledge elevates. And knowledge in a wide array of fields elevates even more. So that's why a classical education included instruction in science, math, literature, history, music, art, foreign languages, Latin, Greek, sports, and more. My mother, when she was educated, you know, several decades ago, she also had to take tennis instruction and horseback riding instruction and painting. This is all to create a certain type of person, a refined, educated, civilized, sophisticated person. The idea was to create a well-rounded person. The educational system in public schools and universities today is a legacy of this ideology. But the people who run it actually no longer believe in it. Leftists dominate the educational field. And they regard classical education as the product of dead white males and inherently racist, misogynist, homophobic, etc., etc. You get the idea. Some educators even now they'll state openly that the rules of grammar and math, for example, are bigoted. You know, you may believe that two plus two is four, but others believe it's five. And who are you to say that they're wrong? And as for grammar, well, you know, punctuation restricts creativity. Besides, who invented the rules of grammar? Racist whites in all probabilities. Therefore, who needs to learn all these things? So the story of the education of the last 50 years, actually, is the gradual but inexorable march away from the standards of yesteryear. Great works of literature that have been studied for 100 or 200 years are now being replaced by works of literature that were written a few decades ago. Why? Is it because the newer book is better? No, it's because the older book was written by a white and the newer book was written by a black. And if it's written by a black woman who's also LGBT and poor, you know, even better. Modern educator, educators focus heavily on race, on gender, etc., etc. They don't aim to teach knowledge. They aim to teach hatred of Western civilization and various incarnations of the LGBT agenda. 
And when they're not teaching that stuff, they're focused on moderating class discussions rather than actually teaching useful facts. They stress not knowledge, but, quote, learning how to learn. That's a very popular catchphrase, whatever that means. I have no idea what that means, but they use that phrase a lot. And they try to sound very intelligent when they use that phrase, too. As Newt Gingrich once said, and this is one of my favorite lines of his of all time, of anyone, really, he said, liberals believe that, quote, you don't have to learn. You have to learn about how you would learn so that when you finish learning about how you learn, you have self-esteem because you're told you have self-esteem, even if you can't read the word self-esteem, end quote. That's modern education in a nutshell. When I attended Yeshiva University, the core curriculum was still based on the older educational model. If I remember correctly, I and every other student had to take two literature classes, two science classes, one music or art class, and one math, statistics, or computer science class. In addition, I believe we had to take at least one history or philosophy class and two classes from the following four subjects, history, economics, sociology, and psychology. In other words, a student graduating YU had to have a wide range of knowledge in clearly defined disciplines of study. Around a decade ago, though, YU decided that, that this core curriculum wasn't progressive enough, so it junked it and replaced all the courses I just listed with required courses in the following amorphous categories, cultures over time, contemporary world cultures, interpreting the creative. Now, what in the world does interpreting the creative mean? I have no idea, but that's one of their categories. Interpreting the creative, human behavior and social institutions, experimental and quantitative methods, and lastly, the natural world. In other words, out with the meat and bones, in with a feel-good glitter. The people who inspired the change in YU's curriculum are the very same people who are now trying to reform Hasidic Yeshiva education. They don't believe in education classically defined. So what do they believe in? I'm actually not really sure. If they wanted to prepare students for life, they would advocate teaching English and basic math and extensive computer knowledge. For example, how to start a website, how to start an online business, how to conduct effective online marketing, etc., etc., in today's day and age, computer knowledge is far, 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 far more practical than scientific knowledge. Yet, no one advocates teaching computer business knowledge. Even public schools neglect this subject, while they do, though, advocate teaching science. Okay, but what exactly is the state interest in its citizens knowing how many electrons revolve around the nucleus of a nitrogen atom? What is the state's interest in its citizens knowing Newton's second law of motion? Again, I am all for kids knowing tons about the world Hashem created. But what exactly is the state's interest in kids knowing this? I, I don't see any. And that's a key point because the morality of state compulsory education law is predicated on the state having a compelling interest. I should note that as a general matter, I'm a libertarian, which means I don't believe in government telling people how to live. Libertarianism is in many regards just an extension of the golden rule. You wouldn't want your neighbor telling you how to raise your child, so don't tell him how to raise his. Respect his choices. If he believes his kid is better off not knowing science, or if he believes his kid is better off working with him in his store rather than going to school, you can try to persuade him to act differently, but to forcibly remove his child from his home against his will, and to arrest him if he refuses to let you take his child? Who do you think you are? The problem with so many political debates is that we think in abstract terms. The state should arrest parents who do or don't do X, Y, or Z. When we're talking about people in the abstract, it's easy to say all sorts of things. 
So let's stop talking in the abstract. Imagine society consisted of just 30 people, all of whom you know by name. Do you think it's moral to take a child away from your next-door neighbor, the one you occasionally chat with, if he isn't educating his child the way you think he should educate him? Now, all that said, though, historically speaking, libertarianism has not ruled the day in America. The founding fathers of this country designed the federal government to be small and possess very little authority to mix into the daily affairs of ordinary citizens. State and city government, however, not the federal government, but the state and city governments have always been more intrusive. And between 1852 and 1918, every single state in the union enacted compulsory education laws. Now, I may not like that, and indeed I don't like that, but these laws are in fact on the books, and they're predicated though on the state having an interest in its citizens being educated. But again, what is that interest? A religious society can have an interest in making sure its citizens are religiously educated. And actually, the first compulsory education laws in this continent were in 1842, sorry, 1642, in Massachusetts Bay Colony. The Puritans wanted their children to be religiously educated. And of course, in Jewish society, you want Jews to be Jewishly ed- educated. But America is not a religious country per se, at least on a state level. So what interest does the government have, a non-religious government have, in its citizens being educated? So there was a seminal case in 1972 in which the Supreme Court wrote in, in, in its decision, quote, Thomas Jefferson pointed out early in our history that some degree of education is necessary to prepare citizens to, to participate effectively and intelligently in our open political system if we are to preserve freedom and independence. Further, education prepares individuals to be self-reliant and self-sufficient participants in society, end quote. It comes from the Supreme Court decision 1972. It was a case between the Amish citizens of Wisconsin or an Amish community in Wisconsin uh, who did not want to send their kids to school past eighth grade, and the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor of the Amish. In any event, though, I want to focus, though, on what it said about what the state's interest is in compulsory education. So let's take each claim in turn. So the first one is that the state has an interest because an education is necessary for people to, quote, participate effectively and intelligently in our open political system, end quote. Okay, so this is kind of, you know, makes sense. A brute and a is liable to vote based on misinformation and ignorance. So the state has an interest in its citizens being informed. Okay, that's a fair enough argument. But if that was your concern, there's no need to reform yeshiva education. From Jews, including Hasidim, love politics. And there is no shortage of or access to political knowledge in Brooklyn. They listen to talk radio. They listen to podcasts. They debate politics in the mikvah. They're well informed. In fact, if you pitted an average Hasid against an average black man from Harlem, it wouldn't even be a contest. The Hasid would know 10 times more than the black person would. So if you really wanted to make sure your citizens were politically well-informed, you would target the black community. You wouldn't target the Hasidic community. And the same is true if you cared about producing well-behaved citizens. If you think education you know, civilizes a person, okay, maybe it does some, to some extent. But then again, you would target black communities. You wouldn't target Hasidic communities. After all, it's blacks who are mugging and killing people on the street. It's not Hasidim who are doing that. Okay, the second argument, though, the Supreme Court um, talked about was, quote, education prepares individuals to be self-reliant and self-sufficient participants in society. Well, on that score, opponents of the yeshivas, of the Hasidic yeshivas, have a point. It's true, as the Hasidim say and as others say as, as well, that with will and street smarts and some helpful connections, a person can succeed wildly in business, education or no education. And that's especially true today in the internet age when starting a business has never been easier. It is true. It's also true that laboratures, many of whom have zero secular education, 
go out and they're Chabad Shluchim and they start whole communities, start schools, start shuls. So with zero education, many graduates of the Lubavitch system manage to do, to do just fine. Why? Because they have willpower. With willpower and street smarts, you could get very, very, very far in life. However, not everyone is was born to be a businessman. Not everyone has a super duper huge inner drive. And not everyone possesses street smarts. For that matter, not everyone is smart altogether. Those people, those people who are not so smart, who are not born businessmen, would these people find it much easier to advance in life as adults if they graduated high school with basic reading, writing, and arithmetic knowledge? Almost certainly. So I don't see how Hasidim are going to win that argument. The only thing they can say is that the government should mix out of their business. I agree with them. I agree the government should mix out of their business. But state governments historically in this country have mixed into people's businesses. I will say this, though. State interference in people's businesses only makes sense when society is homogenous. So once upon a time, for example, many states in the, in the United States had laws against adultery. Actually, 16 states still have laws against adultery on the books in this country. They don't enforce them, but they're actually still on the books. So if everyone in a society is on the same page, you can vote your values into law. And by doing that, you reinforce the values that everyone already believes in anyways. And also you could punish the occasional rebel. But when a society is no longer homogenous, when one half of society holds wildly different views than the other half, which is true today, then interfering in people's lives becomes far less justified. Adultery, for example, will always remain wrong. But it would be tyrannical to enforce adultery laws in a society where, say, 30% of the populace believed adultery was wonderful. Again, I'm, of course, talking about regular states, regular governments, not a Torah state or a Torah government. So the same thing with adultery, polygamy, all these laws. They only make sense, and it should only be enforced when everyone agrees. But when you no longer live in a homogenous society, then it becomes problematic. So as long as basically everyone in society agreed that an education was valuable and agreed on what a basic education should look like, then perhaps it made sense to have the state enforce compulsory education laws. But we no longer live in such a society. The left hates the right, and the right hates the left. We hate the values of the left, and the left hates our values. We believe, for example, that many LGBT-like behaviors are capital crimes. The left believes these same behaviors are liberating. Our values are too far from theirs. And at this point, libertarianism is the only philosophy that will allow our two sides to live in peace. You do your thing and we'll do ours. We will try to convince you that we're right and you could try to convince us that you're right. But don't use the force of the law to shove your values down our throats. That's only going to lead to more contention and to more anger. And we already have more than enough of that. One last point before I conclude on corporal punishment. The New York Times article highlights teachers who hit their students, which is apparently supposed to horrify readers. We have nothing to be ashamed of, though. Like it or not, classical Jewish sources encourage spanking. No less of a figure than Shlomo HaMelech writes in Mishlei, spare the rod, hate the child. We all know the line, spare the rod, spoil the child, but Mishlei actually says, spare the rod, hate the child. The Kids of Shulchan Aruch says a father should hit a child if he doesn't listen when told to stop doing something wrong. The Shulchan Aruch writes that Bezin should hit children for stealing. The Gemara, and you can look this up, Makos Davches Amin Aleph, assumes that hitting a student every once in a while is good even if the student did nothing wrong. Again, don't believe me? Look it up. Makos Davches Amin Aleph. 
And of course, we all know the halacha that a teacher who accidentally kills a student in the process of disciplining him is putter. The Shalom advocates hitting children as well, writing that mothers, and this is all a quote with some ellipses, but a quote, mothers should not spare the rod, but should strike their sons even if they scream. Again, direct quote. Women, he writes, who are compassionate with their children, murder them, end quote. Now, of course, we're not talking about human animals who hit children for sadistic reasons. If a Rebbe is such a, a human animal, then of course he should be fired. But assuming we're dealing with normal people who hit kids occasionally because they're misbehaving, we have nothing to be ashamed of and nothing to be embarrassed by. Corporal punishment is firmly part of our Masora, and anyone who says otherwise is lying. <laughs>